We are looking this morning at the sovereignty of God in history, lessons from the book of Joel. If you want to flip in your Bibles to Joel. Joel means Yahweh is God. We're not really sure when the book of Joel was written. And as with um, some of these other prophets, uh, dating these uh, books can become rather difficult. And in many ways it becomes hopefully educated guesswork. It seems that we want to, at least in our study here, date him to the 9th century, around 835 B.C. So he is one of the older prophets, or one of the first minor prophets. In our chronological order, he would come second. So the question is, why would we date him like that? Why would we... Why would we say that he goes back this far? Well, in this book, there is no mention of a king. And so some scholars have guessed that this is uh, happening during the reign of Athalia, who was a woman who usurped the throne, who was reigning uh, during the time of when there was a boy king. His name was Joash, and so some people have said, well, maybe it's um, maybe it's during this time, and that seems likely. The style also is more like Amos and Hosea, who are not post-exilic prophets, but pre-exilic. And the canon placement is rather early. If you notice in the listing of minor prophets, this is one of the first minor prophets, but he is prophesying here primarily to Judah, even though some of his prophecies will have to do with Israel as well, the northern kingdom. This would have taken place before the fall of the northern kingdom, 835, roughly 100 years or so before the fall of the northern kingdom, and it would definitely take place before the fall of the southern kingdom kingdom. And Joel wants us to understand that God is sovereign over everything. There is a God, a personal God, not just um, uh, some kind of non-personal, impersonal force that's out there, but there is a personal God right now who is, um, who is superintending and overseeing the entire universe. This is so foreign sometimes to the modern man who thinks of God in terms of just a principle or some kind of concept, but a real God who has life in himself, who is self-existing with no beginning and no end. A personal God who is involved in the affairs of man a God that we can go and we can cry out to, a God that we can pray to, a God that we can, a God that we can talk to. This is the God that Joel wants us to see. This is the true God. This is the only God, and this is the God who is alive. He is still alive today. He will always be alive. He always has been, and he always will be. 
And so it's this God that we go and we pray to. It's this God that we worship. When we come in, we're singing songs. We're not just lifting hands to some impersonal force out there. We're not just doing it because it's kind of cool and it's a thing that we do in our, in our ritual or in our tradition. But we need to be awakened to the fact that there is a God. There is a God. Can you say that with me? There is a God. Let's say it again. There is a God. There's a God. Sometimes we don't think about that. We, we kind of walk through life and kind of go, yeah, God, I guess is kind of out there, but a personal God. Listen, if he's no kind of personal God, he's no God to be worshipped, he's no God to be adored, he's no God to be listened to. But if he's a personal God, if he's a God that thinks and acts in history, if he is a God that is superintending and is judging sin, if he is a God that is restoring the sinner, if he is a God of grace, it is this God who is worthy of our worship and worthy of our adoration. Joel comes and he's prophesying and the dating and exactly what is happening as far as current events in history is not so much important as if we as if we get the message of the text here. And so Joel starts by prophesying by preaching to the people. He may have been a priest. He starts preaching to the people about a natural disaster that has come upon the land. A real physical natural disaster. So during the time of Joel, locusts came. True locusts, true bugs, insects. And they stripped the land of its vegetation. And Joel is, uh, Joel is talking about this. He's talking about the fact that this plague of locusts has swarmed into the land and has devoured the vegetation, has devoured the crops. If you go with me over to uh, Joel chapter 1, Joel chapter 1, verse 4, he says uh, this. He says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. So these are, listen, these are true locusts. This isn't metaphorical. These are real locusts. And he's talking about a real event in, in Israel's history where a plague of locusts has actually come and has devoured the land. So he says, the locusts have come. They've eaten everything. And what the swarming locusts have left, the hopping locusts have eaten and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. If you go down to verse 10 of the same chapter, it says this, The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. But it's not only the grain, the, the wine has dried up. And the oil languishes. Everything has been affected here in this agrarian society. Notice verse 19 and 20. So it's the, it's the uh, wine has uh, dried up. The oil has languished. 
The crops have been eaten, verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. This is quite a sight. Verse 20, even the beasts of the field pant for you. So God has created everything, and he has even created the beasts of the field, and they are so desperate. They're desperate for food, and they're sitting there panting. <sighs> He's saying even, even the beasts, it's not, it's not just the people that are, that are languishing. It's not just the people that have been affected. Even the animals have been affected greatly by this horrible physical plague. The water brooks are dried up, so they're, they're wanting water. You ever been really thirsty and uh, just wanting a, a cup, a drink of water? You're so parched, so the, the brooks of water are drying up. The land is going through this extreme time, literally. Let me say that again. It's going through this time, literally. This is not just pie-in-the-sky kind of spiritual stuff. He's looking at the land, and he's saying, this is what has been actually going on in the land. This is what has been taking place. Locusts have come in. Wine is gone. Olives are gone. The animals are panting. The water has dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. True locusts. True, natural, what we would call a natural disaster. It's interesting. In um, just over a year ago, 2015, in southern Russia, by the way, a lot in the news today about Russia, but millions of locusts descended in southern Russia on far, farmlands in southern Russia. So this isn't just some ancient occurrence that can happen thousands of years ago. Devouring entire fields of crops and causing officials to declare a state of emergency in the region. This is one report. One distraught farmer said, look, there's nothing left on the corn. The locusts ate it all, from the leaves to the cobs, end quote. They have destroyed everything. So the question is, what is going on? And the natural person simply looks at this and says, well, there's a natural explanation for all of this. It's very natural. See, what happens is, you know, the... The, the, the world is, is, is whirling around the sun and can talk about physics and, and uh, chemical reactions and physical laws and laws of nature and all of these different things. This is all that's going on. This is kind of how you hear explanations today. It's just a natural occurrence. It's just the way that things are. One non-believer wrote this uh, regarding the tsunami that occurred in Japan. He said, why did the earthquake and the tsunami occur in Japan? We could, we could say the same thing about the locusts. Why did the locusts come and destroy the fields? Why is Israel coming under such mass and natural destruction? He says this, was it the act of an angry God? It's amazing how many people want to distance themselves from God when it comes to nature. Storm comes in, they say, oh, no, 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 God didn't have anything to do with that storm. You see, God's in heaven, and there's these natural laws that are, that are taking place here on earth, and kind of God is out there, he's, he's really distant, 
In many ways, we have given in to what is called the God of deism, a, a distant God. So you'll even hear preachers say something like this. Why did this natural disaster happen? Is God behind any of this? Did, did God cause this? And people say, oh, no, 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 no. God didn't have anything to do with this. God was up in heaven playing checkers with somebody. And he happened to look over and see the different things that were going on on earth. And he is just as shocked as we are. You hear people excuse God all the time. No, God didn't have anything to do with that. God didn't have anything to do with the rain. God didn't have anything to do with the famine. God doesn't have anything to do with the cold. We can explain all this naturally. So we even have Christians talking more and more like that. He says this. No, it was the result of talking about this tsunami, the movement and collision of the Earth's tectonic plates a process driven by the Earth's need to regulate its own internal temperature. It's all natural. Now what the Bible teaches is a doctrine of concurrence. That is, two things can be happening at the same time. So we can look at something and we can say, well, there are natural explanations, and there are. We could take somebody driving a car, and we could say, why is this car going? And somebody could say, well, because if you understand fuel and um, pistons and all of the different things, an engine that goes along with a the car, then you'll understand why it's driving. And somebody else comes and says, but is there more than that? That's the question. Is there, is there more? Is it just a definition of fuel and motor and explosions? Or is it that there is a driver who's behind it as well? So two things are going on at the same time. We could say, yes, there are seasons. Yes, there are tectonic plates, and yes, we can sit down and look at the uh, weather patterns and laws of nature and, and give explanation for these things, and that's right to do that. It is God who has created science. It is God who has put different laws in place. And so we say, yes, that's right. We can give a physical and natural explanation for what is going on. But the question is, is there more than that? Is there a deeper explanation? Could it be that two things are actually going on at the same time? Could it be that there are laws that have been put in place by God and explanations that we can come to in the scientific community with scientific answers? But can we say more about this? And it's this more that Joel is concerned about. And in fact, it's not only Joel who's concerned about this, it's the rest of the authors of the Bible that say, look, this isn't just about this earth and machinery and natural occurrences, but there is an actual God, we're going back to what we were just saying, who is superintending and who is ordaining everything that comes to pass. There is a God behind everything. And so we don't need to excuse God as Joel Osteen does when he used to be on Larry King, and uh, the question would come, well, why did such and such happen? Did God have anything to do with this? Oh, no, 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 God didn't have anything to do with this. It's not what the scripture says. So we say we can give these right explanations, but what we're saying is there is more to the story. So why don't you go with me over to uh, Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38 this kind of a teaching is all 
uh, throughout the, um, the texts of Scripture. Job chapter 38. The Lord is talking out of a whirlwind uh, to Job. And he's talking about the natural occurrences, what we would call the natural occurrences that take place in the world. And by the way, there's nothing like a smart person who is surrendered to the authority of Scripture. When you hear these so-called smart people pontificating about how this happens and that happens, they're always excusing God or they don't believe in God, they are not wise. Listen carefully. They are not wise, but they are fools. They're fools. The wise person says, God is behind this. There is a God. There's a living God who has created and has ordained everything. That's what he says in verse 22. Just to take a couple examples here. Job 38, verse 22. Uh, the Lord says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Which I have reserved. Who's reserved this? Is it just natural laws? Is that all we're talking about? Is that what God says? Well, you got to understand this, Job, that uh, I'm, I'm a very distant God, and I've just put all these different things in place. No, no. He says that I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war. Could it be that God has reserved snow and hail at times for his own specific purposes? Is it possible for us to pray to a God when bad weather hits an event that we believe is from the Lord and say to the Lord, Lord, would you, would you hold off the rain? Is that possible to pray a prayer like that? Absolutely. Is it possible to go to him and say, Lord, would you take care of these different circumstances in nature? The effects of it, would you help us because you are God who has ordained all, you are over all of nature? Is it possible to pray those kind of prayers? Yes. He says this, verse 24, what is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, in the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? He's saying, Job, who's in charge of all this stuff? Listen, uh, kids are going into college. You're going to have uh, kids grown young adults who are in college you have a decision to make when the professor says to you God and stops there is no God everything can be explained naturally you have a decision to make you have a decision to to make whether you're going to believe the time-tested word of God that thunders forth with clarity that says behind all of this superintending ordaining causing causing all things to happen even through secondary causes, is a righteous and personal and holy God whom we can relate to. Or you can be lost in a conundrum and complete confusion as you say, I just don't know what to do. And throw So you walk through life. Listen, we have zombies walking through life today. You know how many people are confused? Walking through life, just, I don't know. In a, in a haze, everything is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then they die. Is that the way God wants us to live? I don't know about anything. I don't know about anything. 
well, I've heard this, but that doesn't make much sense to me. I've heard that. That doesn't make much sense to me. Listen, God would say to the young men, gird up your garments, gird up your loins, dress like a man. It's time to come to a decision. Are you going to stand for the living God? Are you going to pursue him? Are you going to believe in his word? And you're only going to do that if you're so moved by the spirit. Are you moved this morning to believe? Are you moved? Are you saying, God, you're there? God, you're there. I'm absolutely convinced that uh, God is going to bring breakthroughs this year in people's lives, spiritual breakthroughs. And there have been many people, the senses, there have been many people even praying over the past number of years for things, and they're just saying, God, I've been praying. God, I've been praying. God, I've been praying. God, I'm asking you, but it, 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 and I believe, but it just feels like it just feels like I'm praying and I don't know what's happening. You persevere. You keep pressing on. God is going to bring. God is going to bring sweet breakthroughs. You remember back to times in your life when you were rejoicing in the Lord and you could sense His presence, and there were times of great sweetness. Those times of refreshing are coming again. They're coming again. But you got to hold on. And there's a whole host of people that are just saying, we're not going to follow the Lord. And you have, you have a choice today to make. You're either going to follow the God of Joel who says there is a God and he's sovereign over all of nature. Or you say, I'm not going to follow that. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 45. Verse 7, God is speaking here, and he's speaking clearly. Let's go back to verse 6, Isaiah 45, verse 6. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. So this is, this is the message that we're hearing this morning. There is a God, and he's a personal God, and he's interacting with us in all of history. All of history. This God has... This God has his eyes on you. And there are some of you in this room, you need to get alone with God. Listen, you need to deal with God. You need to get alone with God. Listen, you need to lock the door. You need to get on your knees. And you need to deal with God about whatever you're praying about. You need to cry out to God, this living God, this, this God here who in the text says, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. What, what an awful statement that is. I equip you. I'm giving you all this stuff. I'm the one who's causing the world to run around the sun. But he says that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there's none besides me. I'm the Lord and there is no other. Now here it is, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. And create, what's that word? Calamity. This is what God is saying. He's saying, I'm the one. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He has his purposes. And God was using this locust disaster as a taste of judgment for Israel's sins. Going through Rev relative times of prosperity and having a relatively good life and saying, you know what, I'm okay. I mean, we'll just kind of be lukewarm about the Lord. We don't really need to pray. We don't need to really go after him. We can just kind of do whatever it is we want. And the Lord 
uses this locust plague, sends this locust plague to wake them up. But it's a foretaste. And so Joel is going to use this as a foretaste of coming judgment. Coming judgment. So this, this locust event was in the past. And he's going to use that as a illustration or a lesson for future judgment that was coming for Israel in the future called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord has a, a couple of different expressions. It has interim expressions where we see days of the Lord in history where nations were judged in history and the Day of the Lord came for them at a certain point in history for Israel. This was still future. The Lord was talking about this Day of the Lord. He's saying it's going to be like the locusts that have come. But then there's going to be a final expression of the day of the Lord. And that is when the Lord comes at the end of all of history, the Lord is coming. And so Joel was able to look forward to this day of the Lord that was going to come against Israel. That was going to come relatively quickly, but he's also looking down through the corridors of time to a day we haven't yet even experienced. And he's telling us that there is a day of the Lord coming for us. There is a time when the Lord is going to come back. And for those of us who know him, it's going to be a wonderful day of joy, this day of the Lord. But for many people, for many of the nations, it's going to be a time of great hopelessness and great disaster and great destruction. So we're waiting for that. This, this day is still coming. We are actually waiting. There's a present God in heaven right now. And at some point, the day of the Lord is going to come. And the Bible says that Christ is going to come with his mighty ones, with his angels. So it has this, according to Joel, this great theme of the day of the Lord. It has an interim expression where it started back in that time. And it has a later final expression, which still yet has to come. So let's look at this interim expression. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for here it is, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. The question is, what is he talking about? It's likely that he's talking about, in this case, he's talking about the Assyrians who are going to come, they're going to wipe out Israel later on in 722, later on the Babylonians are coming, and he's saying that this day of Judgment is coming. You need to get ready for it, folks. It's, it's coming. This isn't just something like, well, uh, it, it's just a spiritual lesson we're learning. Listen, we've even had uh, such times of great hope in our nation. Many of us have not experienced the, the terrors of war. But I will tell you this, in the last number of years, last decade or so, there has been a sense of creeping darkness in our land. And people can feel it. And for the believer looking at this time, Lord, there's, there's something off. We recognize there's spiritual radar in us that is going, something is, is not right here. There are, there, are, there are problems here in our nation. There are problems in the world. And God is telling Joel... Uh, through his word, his powerful word, that there is a day coming of judgment for his people. Notice verse 4. So he's saying this day is coming. 
Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses. They run, verse 5, as with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the top of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. So he said, I'm warning you, there is a day, Joel is prophesying, he is preaching, there is a day, this day of the Lord is coming, there's going to be this first expression of the day of the Lord when he comes. And he's pleading with them for a right response. So he's saying it's going to be like when those locusts came and there was disaster on the land. It's even going to be greater than that. And he gives us what the right response is. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 1. He says this, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. What do we do when we start to see natural disasters? What do we do when we start to feel that creeping darkness in our land? What are we to do? It's interesting what God says here first. He talks to his ministers, his priests, the teachers of the law. And he says to the preachers, he says to the, to the priests, he says, wail and get on your knees and begin to cry out to God. When we're looking at all that's going on in our land, we're not supposed to just say, well, this is natural occurrences. That's all it is. It's just tectonic plates, and we can just explain this. No, no, when the people of God are saying, there is something wrong here, it's time for us not to just ignore all of those warning signals and say, we're just going to keep on doing what we've always been doing. It's time for the ministers of God to say, Lord, we need not a new scheme, a man-made scheme to make a successful church. Lord, we need to be about your business. There's something wrong here. That we put on sackcloth and we wail before the Lord and we come before the Lord and we say, God, you've got to do something here. We begin to plead with God. God, would you help us? Lord, we're in a dark place. God, would you bring us out of that? Would you have would you have mercy on us? Notice what he says in chapter 2. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. He says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. Now he's talking to all the people. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. What, what happens when we begin to see these kind of things occur? He says, return to me with all your heart. God is not interested in us just tearing our clothes. And in those days, oftentimes the Jews, they would have clothes that they would actually rip as an indicator of their sorrow. Can you imagine if we did that today? Somebody was kind of sad and they just tore their, tore their shirt. And say, well, that's, that's a little strange there. That's what, what's going on here. But God is saying, I'm not interested in you just ripping apart your clothes. I'm interested in you coming before me with fasting. How about giving up food, a meal, a day of not eating or even more, with weeping? When's the last time we wept before the Lord? Not, not just coming in. God is not after just exterior stuff. He wants our hearts. That's what he's after. He's saying, I want you to repent. I want you to get right with me. I want you to not just tear your outer clothing. I want you to rend your heart and get right with God. Be soft before him. Be moved by him. Be changed. 
with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in his steadfast love, and he relents over his disaster. So this is our response. This was their response then. It's our response now. When we begin to see these things, when we're sensing, we, we need to be asking ourselves questions like, has our nation been sinning? Have we turned our back on God? Have we been doing things as a nation that are against his will? Can we expect for God to just continue to bless us, continue to bless us, continue to pour out his blessings on us as we continue to spurn his word and be hard-hearted and not moved by the things of the Spirit? We're not moved. And God comes along and says, it's time to rend your hearts. It's time to come before me with fasting and with prayer. You say, well, it's too late. Things have already happened. The locusts have come. Years have been hard. Perhaps you're even looking at your life and you're saying, well, even if I get right with God now, look at all the, look at all the years that have passed, that have gone by. If I came to the Lord now, I, I think about the time I did this and the time that I did this, and we've all messed up, and we look at all of the years that have, have passed on before us, and we think to ourselves, can God do anything? Can he do anything about that? Should we still be rending our hearts and coming before the Lord? And sometimes people have um, an attitude that just says, you know what, it's just too late. Listen, that's a demonic voice. It's just too late. God can't move now. You've been, you've been praying for this for, for so long. It's just over. Or it's a guilt trip over something. Or it's life that you're just looking at your life and you're just saying, Look at all of the ruin and look at all of the devastation. Israel looks at the physical locusts that have come in and just ruined the land. And God is telling them to repent and get things right in their heart. And they're thinking to themselves, really, what, what can be done now? But notice what God promises, verse 25 of chapter 2. He says this, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore to you those years. What a wonderful promise that God can actually make things right even after all of the different things, after the judgments of God, after the many different sins of the past. Can he really make things right? And God is saying, absolutely. I can not only take care of the future, but I can restore to you the years of the past, the years that the swarming locusts have already eaten and have destroyed. Then he gives a wonderful promise if you go down to verse 32 of the same, same uh, chapter, chapter 2, starting verse 28. He says this, and it shall come to pass. So afterward, after this coming judgment, he says, and it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Here, here's the promise of what he's saying. Yes, judgment is coming. Repent, get things right. He's going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. But there's even a time in the future when the Spirit of God is going to be poured out upon his people. Verse 32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The beginning of this was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. If you go over to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, he's promising this... Um, this wonderful time of refreshing, this time of the Spirit. 
And he is saying here in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out here, and he says, uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's talking about our text from the Old Testament. And in those days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old, young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of that. It's going to continue to be fulfilled and find its final fulfillment in the Lord's coming. So he says this, you come to me, I'm going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. You come to me and I'm going to, in the future, and we are now living in that time, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. We can experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is what happens in the new birth. This is what God is talking about. He's talking here about circumcised hearts. Hearts that have been rent. Hearts that are moved by the word of God. As we hear God's word being preached, we say, I want God. I want to, I want to experience his presence. I want to actually know him. That's what, that's what this is talking about. So he's telling Israel there's going to be a day of judgment, a day of the Lord that is going to come, and it came in history. But there's also going to be a final expression of the day of the Lord. If you go back to Joel, Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Here it is, for the day of the Lord. Now he's talking about this final consummation. There was a day of the Lord that has come, and there is a day of the Lord that is still future. He says, Israel, I'm going to judge you, and he did judge them. But he's saying that there is going to come a time of judgment for all of the nations of the earth. As they come, and this is talking about the last of the last days, when the nations of the earth literally physically come and they array themselves against Israel. So we have this literal prophecy. It has been fulfilled in history and it will be fulfilled in the future. And for Israel to have nations come against them presupposes that there's going to be a nation of Israel. And it's an absolute miracle that after almost 2,000 years of New Testament history, that all of a sudden there is a nation of Israel today. And for many years we heard, support Israel, support Israel. We need to fight for Israel. We need to be their friend and bless Israel. You'd hear that preached in the church. You'd hear things like we're talking about today, judgment preached in the church. You'd hear about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being something that has occurred in history and also something that will occur in the future. And now you hear more and more people say, well, Israel's just kind of a nation just like anybody else. And maybe we shouldn't really treat them as 
special. And maybe this is just spiritual stuff. It's amazing that God says, listen, in the last days, the armies of the world are going to be arrayed against Israel. How would that even be possible unless Israel was in the land? And yet God foresaw that they would be taken out of the land and that they would be scattered. And he says, listen, the day of the Lord is coming. And the day of the Lord came with Assyria. And Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom later gets wiped out by Babylon. God says to them, but I'm going to bring you back. And on that day of the Lord, the nations of the world are going to be arrayed against Israel. Listen, Israel even today gets blamed for everything. I remember a pastor was telling me that he went over to Israel and he was talking about, he hears all these reports on our media about how bad Israel is. And then he goes over there and he sees firsthand that this is just not true. But you hear, you hear, you hear it even in the church, people saying, well, maybe we should, maybe we should just treat Israel just, just, you know, who knows? They're just, just like America. God says, no, no, no. I'm going to bring my people, he says this, I'm going to bring my people back into the land. And the nations of the world are going to be arrayed against them. Can you imagine this? So the day of the Lord has come and God has used the nations. He's used Assyria. He's used Babylon to judge Israel, to judge Judah. But he's not done with the nations of the world for their sin and the way that they've treated Israel and the way they've treated Judah. So he says on that final day, on that final day of the Lord, can you imagine this? Can you imagine the nations of the world set against this little tiny country? This little country. That's exactly what it's saying here. He says, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You say, well, how does it end? Well, go with me to the end of chapter 3 here. It says this, verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and from the valley of Shittim, Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Here it is. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. That's literal. And I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Say this, even though I'm going to take you through Israel, the day of the Lord in history, and you're going to be judged. There's going to come a point where I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to send my spirit, and he is going to draw people to Jesus Christ throughout history. And that's the day and age we live in right now, and the day of the spirit, the age of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we want to be in. Listen, we don't want to miss this. We want to know what the Word of God says and take it at face value. So we come before Him and we are refreshed in His presence. And the Lord says that in the future we are still waiting for that day. He's going to come. And the nations of the earth are going to be judged. And Israel, believing Israel, ethnic Israel, all of those who profess the Son, there's no other way into the millennium. There is no other way into the new heavens and the new earth except through Jesus Christ.
He's going to defend his people. And they're not going to be defended just for a small time, but the word of God says here they are going to be defended forevermore. The Lord will be their defense. Amen? And so we thank the Lord for his coming. Would you uh, would you stand with me as we close? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would rend our hearts before the day of the Lord. Lord, would you cause us in this church to be people who are saying, restore us, O Lord, to yourself. Draw us back to you. Lord, you don't want just outward confessions and outward posturing. God, you use this swarm of locusts, this literal swarm of locusts to show what you have done in history and what you're going to do in the future. And you say, be warned. Lord, we want to be on your side. Lord, we want to know you. God, I pray that this week, as we think about uh, Joel, that we would be thinking about what does it mean to rend our hearts? What does it mean to come before you with a contrite spirit? And I pray from the oldest, as the prophecy said, that it's not just young people, but it's the old men and old women all the way down to the youngest people in our church, that we would have encounters with God. Lord, I pray against uh, hopelessness for those who are saying today, there's just it's just hopeless. Lord, I pray that you would break through in the lives of your people here at City Life. Break through, we pray. We pray that there would be times of sweet tears, Lord, as you restore us to yourself. You think of David when he says, I, I remember when I was joyful going with the throng up to the tabernacle. I, I remember that. Lord, bring us back to that, we pray. Restore to us, we pray, the joy of the Lord. Restore us, O Lord, to yourself. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.